God himself that he has kept. Because there is no way anyone who claims that they have received this grace from the righteousness of the Lord, the Holy God of heaven, mere mortals, receive the righteousness of God through the grace of Jesus, and then walk loose, walk naked in the streets, expose yourselves in such a filthy way. There is no way our God is separated from sin. And you can see his original intent is actually to separate us from sin too. And that's why he provided Jesus. So God the Father Yahweh indeed intended that the Christian believers attain the gift of righteousness through his glorious Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he developed a mechanism in his blueprint for righteousness as a standard for the church to enter heaven. That mechanism had to be Jesus Christ, to breed man, fallen man, to now the righteous God. But there is a transforming factor I'm going to talk about here. And that's why what you see today being preached while there, you see the pastor or the pastor's wife standing with the pastor on global TV up at the altar, and the altar is high up there, and she's dressed in a short dress, and people are sitting down here, and they are almost looking at her in decency. So that is not the righteousness we are talking about. Then you hear that preacher talking about righteousness is a gift of grace, don't worry about this and that. That is a misconception. That is actually the devil in the church. The devil attempting to lie to the church to put to surprise her that she may find herself in hell. And mass. So, this righteousness was intended and meant to be achieved, beloved people, that once Jesus died on the cross, then now the present-day Christian was given this access to the righteousness of God, free of charge, by the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the Christian. Again, by the Holy Spirit working, doing work, the work of God, in the lives of the Christians, to clean out, to purge off the dross of sin and immorality in the body of Christ, in the life of the believer, in the heart of the Christian. Now, that is a very important standard right there. He says, this is the blueprint of God regarding the righteousness that you saw here, them trumpet so much on TV, in their churches, they say, oh, we are righteous, we have the righteousness of God, let us celebrate. That righteousness was intended to come in this way. It was meant to be attained by Christ Jesus dying on the cross and then handing down the garment of righteousness, as the Bible says in Revelation 19, was given her gratis, free of charge. Handing down to the church the garment of righteousness and then sending the Holy Spirit of God to do work, to start working in the lives of the Christians to clean out, to purge off the sin that had beclouded their eternity to purge off the dross of immorality, indecency, sin, deception, call it what? All anything sin and wickedness. So that righteousness was supposed to have been achieved by a continual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian believer to clean out anything sinful that would separate the church from God. You see that now? That is the righteousness by grace that the church received. The righteousness of God, that is the gateway to the righteousness of God that the church walked, that was availed to the church to walk through. He says, in other words, the Lord intended that the Holy Spirit, after one receives the Lord, the Holy Spirit now come in them, the present-day church, the present-day Christians, 
and incinerate, begin to burn off with unquenchable fire the sinful affections of men, the sinful passions of the flesh, and the sinful pleasures of the flesh. That is what was intended. So that tells you right away that this thing you are seeing in the present-day modern church, this is the work of Satan, and he's going to plunge them into hell. God is holy and righteous, and he has availed us a means of being work in progress, working progress, that we too may inherit the righteousness of God now through the work of Christ Jesus and enter heaven. It was not meant to be abused. The abuse you see today, the abuse of the grace. In other words, when one receives the Christ Jesus that died on the cross at Calvary, they were intended to now receive the Holy Spirit. And upon receiving the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, as promised by the Lord, the Holy Spirit would begin working in the lives of the Christians to clean out the sin, sin, evil, and wickedness, to purge off the dross, the dross of immorality and decay. And in so doing, incinerate the sinful affections of man, the sinful passions of man, and the sinful desires and pleasures of the flesh. That is the way the righteousness of God was supposed to be translated into mortal men now. That mortal men may now live a moral less immortal, in fact, an immortal life. Right? An immortal life while still on the earth, not moral less, a completely immortal life. If you look at their values, their virtues, their value systems, their rankings in the life, how they do their thing, it was supposed to transcend, to be beyond the moral decay of this age. And hence, the Holy Spirit was intended to conform the hearts and the lives of the Christian believers to the image and likeness of God. That is very powerful, because now you understand the true definition of the righteousness of God that no man should ever stand before you and lie to you. Ah, don't worry, we have the righteousness of God because we are Christians. We as Christian believers, we have the righteousness of God so God finished the work. Don't worry about these things. No. The righteousness that comes by the grace of Jesus was supposed to lead to the destruction, to the incineration of the sinful affections of the flesh, the sinful desires and passions of the flesh, the sinful pleasures and the desires of the flesh. And in the process, now conform the Christian heart, the hearts of the Christian believers, the image and the likeness of God that had been lost before. I am reading the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, verses 26 and 26. He says, And God said, Let us make man in our own image. King James. And God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping creature that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, in the image of God created he, him. Male and female created he, them. So it's very powerful. And then he wrote, Amplified says, God says, let us, the Father, God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 
make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and tame the tame beast and over all the earth and over everything that creeps upon the earth. And then he gives the reference of Psalm 1 of over 30 and Hebrews 1 and 2 and 11 and 3. So God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So this is very powerful. Then he gives the reference of Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. So you see, beloved people, I am using that to underscore to you, precious listeners and those tuned in globally, to underscore to you that there is a great misconception unto the virtue of righteousness in the church. Righteousness is the most misconceived, misunderstood concept of Christian salvation in the present age, in the present church. Because far from this, they have been doing their own thing on righteousness. You find they are in immorality, they are living with each other, couples, unmarried, and so forth, and still proclaiming the righteousness of the Lord. Now we have seen that the Lord indeed intended and meant that that righteousness be achieved after receiving Christ and by the workings of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the hearts of the Christians to purge off the sin of immorality, decay, and everything evil and wicked from the lives of the Christians, the born again. And in the process, he says, it was meant essentially to incinerate the sinful desires, the sinful affections, the sinful passions, and sinful pleasures of the flesh from the church. But what do you see in the present-day church? The sinful afflictions, the sinful affections and desires and pleasures of this world are full-blown in the church. They are full-blown. Women are worshipping up their naked. They are showing their breasts and they are saying they are pastors. They are tight trousers showing the anatomy, causing laughs as they preach. And they say they are preachers. So this is a whole misconception. And thank God we can discuss this today. And I say at the end of it was to lead to the confirmation of the soul of the Christian believer, the heart and the lives of the Christian believers, the soul of mankind to the image and likeness of God. And I've read from the book of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, to bring to you, to bring home to you the fact that that image and likeness of God with which he created man in the beginning was actually the righteousness and the holiness of God in man. It was a spiritual image. And that image was lost by Adam when Adam went down in apostasy into sin when he fell, but restored by Christ, but restored in a chronological, sequential manner that befits the blueprint of God. And the blueprint was receiving Christ, then receiving the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life perpetually and daily, cleaning out the sinful affections and desires and pleasures of sin from your life, and then finally achieving the complete conformation, the conforming, the conformity of your soul to the image and likeness of God that had initially been intended for man. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when the Lord created innocent men. Therefore, beloved people, for that matter, the grace and the mercy of our God was principally designed by the Creator, Jehovah Yahweh, to 
to avail towards the following, beloved people. In other words, what I've said until now is that the redemptive blood of Jesus was availed towards by the grace of God, the grace and mercy. And that's why there's a misunderstanding all across the board on this grace. They think you can do what you want or go about your life the way you want and still call it the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace came at a price, beloved people. And the church has their responsibility. And he says, so that grace of Jesus that is so much sung and professed and confessed by the believers of this day, they love it very much, it was meant to unveil the following. The redemptive blood of Christ Jesus for the washing away of the sins of men, for the washing away of the sins of the repentant person. I highlight repentance. Where repentance is, I was walking in sin. Then I was convicted, I, the truth came to me. I became convicted that this is sin. Then I stopped it, I made a 180 degree turn and began to walk exactly into the opposite direction. Number two, the grace of our Lord Jesus was meant to bring us the anointing of the Holy Spirit for the purging off of sin and the reconformation, because initially conformed in Genesis 1, 26, 27, but now to reconform the souls of the Christian believers to the original intended image and likeness of God. That's very powerful, beloved people. And number three, if you so will, or four, whichever, the purpose of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Now you see, the grace of our Lord Jesus from number two was essentially meant to bring righteousness and holiness to the church, the image and likeness of God to the church. And that's why if anybody comes to you and they say righteousness, Righteousness in the university. I'm a student, I'm working righteousness. I'm a teacher, a lecturer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker, I'm a professor. I am also a pastor, I'm a Christian, I work in righteousness. And their lives are not conforming, at least conforming, conforming to the original intended holy image of righteousness of God. Then you can tell that there is a deception. Something is not right somewhere. Something doesn't add up. And three, to create a continuous awareness. So you see now, I'm defining the tenets of the grace of our Lord Jesus that the present-day preachers have abused to the max. I'm saying that grace of our Lord Jesus was intended to unveil to us, to the church, the redemptive blood of Jesus for repentance in us. And I said number two, to unveil, hence, the anointing of the Holy Spirit for incinerating sin for purging off the dross of sin from the lives of the believers and reconforming the life, the soul of the Christian believer back to the original intended image and likeness of God. No mistake can be made about this. No confusion can be made about this. It's not confusing. It's as clear as day and night. That is the clarity that is spelled out here. And I said, number three, that grace of our Lord Jesus was meant to create a sensitivity, in other words, a continuous awareness of the consequences of sin that our Lord Jesus bore for us on the cross. That now when you become the beholder of the tremendous grace of our Lord Jesus, then you are also aware of the price of that grace. And that is what will buffer you. It will stop you. It will deter you from abusing that grace. So when you see the current abuse of the grace of the church,
then you understand surely, surely indeed, a misunderstanding has blended in within the Christian lifestyle, within the body of Christ, regarding the righteous requirements of the Lord. For that matter, beloved, therefore, the righteousness through the grace that the Lord gave us through the grace is meant for the following. It's meant for all of the above of faith, but the grace of our Lord Jesus and the righteousness he gave us was never meant to tolerate sin for purposes of tolerating sin in the church of Christ as you see today. Never. Why? Because righteousness and the grace that brings that righteousness were meant to sensitize the church on the price Jesus paid at Calvary. Otherwise, the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, would say that you are re-crucifying Jesus again and subjecting him to public disgrace, public shame. If you are not sensitive to the tremendous, unbelievable price that Jesus paid on the cross to attain righteousness for the church, and that warning on the abuse of the grace is seen in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It's also seen in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. And it's also found in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So the warning on the abuse of the grace, living insensitively, not being sensitive to the price, the horrendous cost and price that our Lord Jesus Christ paid on the cross. He says that warning by God himself comes comes to the church. It's laid down there in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, and Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. In fact, he becomes very brutal in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, when he says, after we've received the knowledge of the truth and received the salvation of the Christ, received the grace that set us free, and then we recycle back to sin, in so-called grace is sufficient, don't worry, grace is, of course grace is sufficient, but not for abuse. But if we receive that grace and subject ourselves back to sin, he says, it is like a dog vomiting and going back to its vomit and eating the vomit. That is just how brutal it becomes in defining the abuse of the grace that so earned the undeserved righteousness of God that the present-day church ought to be wearing in their lifetime. In fact, the deeper meaning of the righteousness of God relates to the behavioral changes, the behavioral changes that occur in a person once they become covenant partners with the Lord within the covenant of the grace, within the holy covenant of grace. I said holy. The covenant of the grace of God is not sinful. When you look at the present-day church, the way they are executing their preaching and their lifestyle, mixing with sin and making accolades to sin, confirming sin, accepting sin, tolerating sin, it is as though they are saying that the covenant partnership they have entered in with the Lord is actually an evil partnership, is a wicked partnership, is a sinful partnership. It is not a sinful partnership. I say the deeper meaning of righteousness actually relates to the behavioral changes, the changes in behavior, conduct of the 
present Christian believer, the changes they are supposed to go through, that are supposed to occur on them, to their person, to their lifestyle, if they now receive Christ and become covenant partners with God, to enter into the holy covenant of God, that's what I'm talking about here, a relationship, a holy relationship with the almighty creator, the one that speaks with me every single day, even in the day today, he spoke with me today about the church in Nigeria, witchcraft, there are so many witches have assembled somewhere, I think it's a funeral, someone has died, and they are without shirts, many, many dressed in the traditional way, and there is a, some leaders that have come there. There is a traditional ceremony on death being done there in Nigeria. And I think one of them, I hear his name. I had the name I can say. It starts with A-D. Yes, I don't want to say. Yes, I hear him, you know, uh, talking to the widow and all that, you know. But it's a celebration of death, it's worshiping of death in Nigeria, very occult. The Lord took me there this afternoon. So I'm saying the righteousness we are involved in, the righteousness that is grafted unto the church, credited to her for her faith and belief, even as Abraham was, and Enoch also. That righteousness, beloved people, relates to having a covenant with the Holy God. So it has the tenets of holiness. It cannot be some unsinful behavior or conduct or relationship. So the Lord Jehovah, essentially, beloved people, he himself is very righteous, as we've seen. And therefore, he speaks and acts and executes his agenda in the church according to his holiness and purity and the righteous being of God. So God never executes any of his agendas speaking or acting in a manner that's not righteous. So you wonder, where did the present-day church pick her unrighteousness from? Her exaltation of righteousness and confirmation and ratification of righteousness. They actually endorse it. And they say, don't worry, God does not look at your behavior. You're dressing, he looks at your heart. I don't understand where that came from. That is what they're essentially saying when you see them dressing the way they're dressing and preaching the way they're preaching. Telling you, don't worry, it's about prosperity. God wants you to prosper. He doesn't look at righteousness. And when you look at the book of Psalms, the book of Psalm 22, verse 31, you get some little information there, more about righteousness, quite a bit though, about righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord. Psalm 22, verse 31. This is what the Bible says. I'm reading NIV. Then it says, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So you see now, that's very powerful. He's saying that once you enter into the righteousness of the Lord, once you enter into the covenant of the grace of our Lord Jesus, and you begin now percolate, the righteousness of God begins to infiltrate your life, percolate into your life, you will proclaim Claim it with your tongue. And you can never proclaim that which you don't live. And here it says, even unto the coming generation, beloved people. And Psalm 51, verse 14, also helps you understand what God intended righteousness to achieve in the life of the present-day believer. And hence the great misunderstanding. So Psalm 51, verse 14, it says, Save me from 
blood guilt for God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. So you see that. He's talking about a repentance item here, a repentant person here, and an element of repentance in the church, and that in that repentance, there is a turnabout, there is a turnaround in behavior. Like that now, once pardoned, once you're penitent and you repent and you are pardoned, then you begin to live that righteous life of God, righteousness of God, but also proclaim it. Would you see the present day church proclaiming righteousness in their tongue? They do not. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 22 also helps you. Amos chapter 5, 21, we can read probably to 24. This is what he says, beloved people. And he says, Amos chapter 5, 21, he says, all the way to 24, we can finish up 24. He says, I hate, I despair your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your song, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's very powerful. So the Lord talks about this vanity that mankind always recycles into. That they see a revival, and then at one point they recycle into vanity, into apostasy. They become apostates. They recycle into apostasy. They recycle into apostasy and expect the Lord to still receive their offering, their sacrifices of praise and worship. And that is what you see in the church. And he says, no, those assemblies have not gathered in my name. Because he says, you have not upheld righteousness. I will not listen to your sacrifices of worship and praise. Therefore, the covenant people of God, beloved people, the church of Christ, they are quickly, expressly called upon to live righteous lives. That's what we've seen until now. The church and the present-day believer is actually called to live a righteous life, the covenant of the grace of our Lord Jesus. The covenant people of God, the covenant of our Lord Jesus, essentially expressly calls upon the Christian believers, those covenant partners, to live righteous lives in conformity and alignment with the demands of the very covenant of grace they so profess and love. In other words, I'm saying the covenant of the grace of our Lord Jesus is righteous. It is a holy covenant. Even if we get it free of church, but by faith we receive it. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work, working in us, removing sin, removing decay, removing corruption, and then conforming, powerfully conforming and aligning the souls of the believers to the very nature, the holy nature of that covenant, to the righteous nature of that covenant. In other words, I'm saying the Lord Yahweh calls upon the present-day church, believers, present-day generation, the present-day earth, the nations, 
message the Lord is giving the church. He's saying righteousness you cannot get away with. To repent and live lives that are righteous. Because the covenant of our Lord Jesus is a righteous covenant. It's a holy covenant. And he's saying righteousness is still the benchmark of heaven that the Holy Spirit has come to help the church to attain. It is not some lofty aspiration, some imaginary and putative imagination. No. He's saying the righteousness of God is achievable in this life just as Jesus, by example, lived a righteous life here through the help of the Holy Spirit that descended on him, upon him at the river Jordan. He says, so does the church not have that ability, that capability and capacity to live a righteous life because the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit has been availed to her too. In the same way he said about the death of Christ and his resurrection, that just as the Holy Spirit of God helped Christ the Messiah to overcome death on the cross and go down and resurrect, so will the Holy Spirit help the present-day church and those who have slept before, who have been holy, present-day holy church, to be able to overcome death and resurrect and see eternity. And so I don't see anywhere in the Bible where the Bible says, no, you can just live sinful lives because the grace is sufficient. Instead, I see the Bible saying that, be careful, the grace of our Lord Jesus is a holy grace. There was a price paid. It's a righteous grace. And the Holy Spirit is available to help you to begin to make scores and gain towards the holiness of the Lord. And beloved people, when you read the book of Luke chapter 3, it's powerful from verse 7, it says, John said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him. This talks about the righteousness demands of God. The demands of righteousness he lays upon us within the covenant of grace. John the Baptist said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him, you fruits of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say unto yourself, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we are the children of Abraham. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the foot of the tree, at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit of repentance will be cut down and thrown into fire, the unquenchable fire. So, so I can read on and on. But that is so powerful. It helps to define actually the grace and the righteousness he brings us. That defines the righteousness of God. He says, righteousness is best defined by repentance. And when repentance takes place in the heart of a believer, he says, they are then required by the God of the grace, by the law of the grace, to produce forth good fruit, the fruit of repentance. Meaning now to be righteous, beloved people. So righteousness is the fruit of repentance. Before the Lord, righteousness is the fruit of repentance. In finishing, precious people, the first segment, I want to say that Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he also presented righteousness as living in conformity with the will of God. You see that now? The God of our grace, 
Christ Jesus, the God of grace, the messenger of the covenant, he himself, the covenant of grace, when he brought it, he defined it one. He said it implies living in conformity to the will of God. And that is so powerful. In Matthew chapter 5, I can read Matthew 5, 17 to 18, to underscore how the Lord Jesus actually defined to us his righteousness, his covenant of grace, and the righteousness it bestows upon the church. So Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 17 to 20, this is what he says. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So that is very powerful. He says that the law was given to the church. That's why your Bible is complete as Old Testament and New Testament. That the law was given to the church, the law was given to mankind, that they may be able to know what constitutes sin. How can you know what is sin? If you do not know what the law says, if the law says do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not covet, then you are able now within the covenant of grace, which you are given freely, to steer away from them. You are able now to work with the Holy Spirit, to stay away from that which is sin. That's why he said he only came to fulfill the law. He did not come to delete it and it will not be deleted. It stands forever because that is the only way the present-day church can know what constitutes sin and what does not constitute sin. And so, in finishing, beloved people, I want to enter this segment here.